Well, good evening, everyone. It is good to be here with you all. And I honestly, sitting there, when Josh said the last time I was here was 2015 in the pulpit, I was kind of shocked about that. I didn't realize it was that long. So you all may not even remember me. You've probably seen my face around here visiting because I am Daphne Hale's brother. And so here I have my sister and brother-in-law and my nephews and my niece. But also with me tonight, as Josh mentioned, is my wife, Carolyn, and my son, Lincoln, and my daughter, Charlotte. And so we're all excited to be here and to open up God's Word and to study from it with you. And one of the things you probably don't know about me is that I do not have a green thumb. I never have, and I probably never will. And the problem is, everything I touch just seems to die. And it does not matter what it is. Like last summer, I attempted to grow some tomatoes, And so I got one of those five-gallon buckets, and I got the dirt in there, and I put the tomatoes in there, and they lasted a good two weeks, and then they were done. And then, you know, if you ever go to my house, and you'll take a look around, and you'll realize, hey, there's plants in his house, but they're all fake, because I can't have the real ones. They wither, and they die. You know, I really like bonsai trees, those little Japanese trees. There's so many different varieties of them. I think they're really, really unique, really interesting. And so my dad found that out, and so he got me an entry-level, easy-to-maintain juniper bonsai. It's like, this is great. But the problem is, the longer I owned it, the sadder it got, and it too died. And I really feel like I should be better with plants, because when I read the scripture, Jesus is always talking about plants. He's talking about vines and branches and, and the wheat and mustard seeds and harvests and fig trees. And for as much as the scriptures talk about plants, for as much as I read about plants, I feel like I should just have a slightly greener thumb than I do. But I don't. And that's okay, because I don't think that Jesus is speaking about plants because he wants us to be a better farmer or a better gardener. When Jesus talks about these things in the scriptures, what he's doing is communicating something deeper, something with more meaning. And an example of that is seen in the parable of the sower. This is a parable that we are all familiar with. In fact, all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record this parable. In fact, that's one of only three parables where all three of the synoptic writers do that. And so tonight we're going to be looking at the parable of the sower in the book of Mark. And so if you would, go over and turn to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at the first 20 verses of that chapter tonight. And I really like the book of Mark because it's a fast-paced book. It's kind of an edge-of-your-seat type read. Mark doesn't spend a lot of time on certain events. In fact, one of Mark's favorite words is immediately. If you've ever read through Mark's Gospel, you've probably picked up on the fact that that word pops up over and over and over again. In fact, about 40 times throughout the 16 chapters. And the reason why Mark moves at such a fast pace is because he doesn't focus so much on the words of Jesus so much as he does the actions of Jesus. And so that's one of the things about Mark, is he doesn't spend a lot of time focusing on discourses and sermons. He doesn't focus so much on what Jesus says. But one of the exceptions to that is here in Mark chapter 4, in his record of the parable of the sower. 
And so let's again open up to that chapter and read that this evening. And we're going to begin in verse 1. Verse 1 of Mark chapter 4 says this. Again, he began to teach by the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. I really like verse 1. It seems pretty simple. But I really like it because it gives us a picture of the environment surrounding Jesus' ministry at this time. You see, everywhere Jesus went at this point in his ministry, flocks and droves of people followed. Now, when we read through the Gospels, we realize that some of these people actually followed Jesus because there was a spark of faith in them. They recognized Jesus for something more than just a normal teacher. They recognized his authority. They recognized that he possessed truth. But there were multitudes more who followed Jesus because of entertainment purposes. They wanted to see what they could get out of it. They saw that Jesus healed people. They saw that he cast out demons. They saw that he said some pretty interesting things, and they wanted to just be a part of that. And so they followed around saying, what can I get from this? And so everywhere he went, Jesus was swarmed by the public. In fact, if we were to look at Luke's account of this parable, it tells us that people were coming from town after town. They were traveling from all over to see what Jesus would do next. To hear His words. And here, in this instance, the crowds are so large that Jesus actually has to get into a boat and sit on the Sea of Galilee just so he can get some separation between himself and the multitudes. And this seems like a common experience for Jesus when he's by the sea. In fact, in chapter 3 of the book of Mark, it says when Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon, when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And his disciples had to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. This is the frenzy surrounding the ministry of Jesus. And while most of us would probably be tempted to run and hide from a mob like this, Jesus looks out on these crowds and he sees a teaching opportunity. And so from a floating pulpit on the Sea of Galilee, Jesus begins to teach. And verse 2 tells us that he was teaching them in many parables. Again, when we read through the Gospels, we find out that parables are one of Jesus' favorite methods of teaching. In fact, if you were to look at the definition of a parable, it's really just putting two things side by side for comparison. Think parallel. That's where the word comes from. And so when Jesus would speak in parables, what he would do is he would tell a physical story... But alongside that, running parallel to it, would be a spiritual message. And so this is the method of teaching that Jesus is using here in Mark chapter 4. 
And so in his teaching, he said to them, listen. In other words, stop what you're doing because the things that I'm about to say to you are extremely important. And the parable that he went on to tell went like this. Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seed fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And so here Jesus tells what appears to be a fairly simple story about a sower who went out to sow. And as I was reading that, you were probably picturing in your mind a farmer who had a sack of seed around his shoulder, the sack by his waist, and he's reaching his hand into the sack and broadcasting the seed over the various types of soil. And Jesus tells us that some of that soil fell along the path. One commentator mentioned that people would travel through the countryside in that day. And since it was an agrarian society, the countryside was just surrounded and littered with fields. And on the outside of those fields would be paths. And those are the paths that people would travel on. And so they would walk on them, and their animals would walk across them, and carts would go down them. And this continual use just beat down those paths and compacted those paths. If you've ever been hiking on a well-traveled trail, you know exactly what we're talking about. A beat-down, compact surface, almost like concrete. And this is what some of the seed fell upon. And because it fell on this hard surface, it never made it below the surface. Instead, the birds saw it lying there, and they came by and quickly ate it up. In fact, Luke mentions in his account that the seed that wasn't eaten by the birds, was simply crushed underfoot by the people who traveled by. And so the point is, this seed was not received by the soil. And therefore, it never grew, and it never produced anything. And then Jesus tells us about a second kind of ground, which is the rocky ground. Now, for the longest time, when I read rocky ground, I thought that this was was dirt with with chunks of rock in it, maybe gravel dispersed throughout. But I don't think that's what's actually being communicated here. Because apparently in Palestine, what you have in certain areas is a few inches of soil, and under that is a rock bed of limestone, solid. And so what would happen is the, the seed would hit that soil... And it would take root a little bit, but the root couldn't go down very far, just a few inches. And so the plant would shoot up, but there was no way for it to sustain life in the midst of the blazing sun. No way it could draw nourishment or moisture from below. And because it had no depth of root, it too died and produced nothing. And then Jesus discusses the seed that fell among the thorny ground. And the idea uh, is, I believe, of weeds here. 
In fact, this is the soil that I understand the most. Because I know weeds. Like, if you ever come to my house and take a look at my lawn, you'll say, oh, okay, Landon doesn't mow grass, he mows weeds. And if you look around my house, you'll see a few plants, but then you'll also see the weeds around them. You say, okay, he's a weed landscaper. right? Those are the things that I do at my house when it comes to gardening. And I understand that weeds grow fast. They grow aggressively. They take up and consume space. And a young, tender plant that's trying to grow in that type of environment gets choked out, doesn't it? Because the thorns and the weeds, they're taking up all that energy. And that plant can't grow. And so what happens? It too withers and dies and produces nothing. And then lastly, Jesus talks about the good soil. This is that nutrient-rich soil. The balanced soil. The deep soil. This is the soil that received the seed. The seed germinated. It began to take root. And all of a sudden, plants just start growing everywhere and producing fruit. Huge yields. Sixty-fold. A hundred-fold. An unimaginable harvest. And so this is the story that Jesus told that day from that boat. And it seems like a simple story, doesn't it? But verse 9 says that Jesus said this, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In other words, the story you just heard sounds simple enough. But make sure that you truly understand its meaning. Make sure that you know what it is I'm trying to tell you. You just think about the reaction of some of those people there that day. People who have traveled from all over to come and to hear what Jesus had to say. I imagine that when Jesus was done speaking this parable, people were looking around at each other saying, hold on a second. Did we really just come all this way to hear a story about a farmer throwing out seed? We are farmers. This is our livelihood. We understand that when seed falls on the path, it's going to be eaten by the birds. We understand that when seed falls among the weeds, it's going to get choked out. We understand these things. Why did we travel all this way for this? Thanks for nothing, Jesus. And I imagine those people were disappointed. And I imagine many of them left disappointed. But the reason that they left disappointed was because they did not see and understand the spiritual parallel message that Jesus was trying to communicate. However, it appears in this text that there are those who realized Jesus was trying to say something more. In verse 10, it says that when Jesus was alone, those around Him with the twelve asked Him about the parables. And so at some point after Jesus had communicated this, He's alone with the twelve disciples and some other disciples who were with Him, and they question, what's going on with these parables? And notice in Mark's account, 
It's parables plural. Remember in Mark chapter 4 verse 2, it says that he was teaching them many things in parables. And so they want to know, Jesus explained to us, why are you communicating like this? Why are you choosing to say things in this way? What is it that you're wanting us to know? It seems that these people had hearts that were desiring to learn. They wanted to learn. And so in verse 11, Jesus said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that they may indeed see, but not perceive. And they may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And when we read that, we might take a look at it a few times and think, well, hold on, what is it that Jesus is trying to say? I think there's a couple of things, and I think the first thing he's trying to communicate is the specific purpose as to why he is presenting these truths about the kingdom in a somewhat veiled and a somewhat indirect way. I think the purpose for this type of communication is actually to bring people who want to know more, who desire to understand the meaning of these things, to bring them closer to Jesus while at the same time separating those who are indifferent. You see, Jesus speaking in parables is like a sifting process. And so he says, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Why was the secret given to them? It's because they had a desire to know more, a desire to understand. They had the desire to question, to discover meaning. And that's why verse 34 says that Jesus spoke in parables. But privately to his own disciples, those who wanted to know, he explained everything. But for those on the outside, those who were indifferent towards the words of Jesus, everything was in parables and nothing was explained. And Jesus emphasized that by quoting Isaiah chapter 6. And if you remember what happens in Isaiah chapter 6, God is telling Isaiah that he is to make the hearts of the people dull. In other words, he is to harden their hearts. And he was to do this through preaching the word. And it's not that God desired people to reject him. That's not it at all. 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us that God desires all to come to repentance. But the reality is, there are those who are going to reject the preaching of the gospel, going to reject the words of God. And so just like Isaiah sifted the hearts of men through preaching, Jesus is sifting the hearts of men through teaching in parables. And that brings up a universal truth. And that is that Christ, And his words will either harden a person's heart and drive them farther from Jesus, or it will draw a person closer to him. A person is either going to accept the word or reject it. You think about the cross. A non-believer looks at the cross And they see a man nailed to that cross, dying. And you know what they say? 
That's not a king. That can't be a savior. That can't be the promised Messiah. But a person of faith, they look at that same cross and see that same man and they say, but oh, it is. It is the king. It is a savior. You see, Christ, his life and his words, you either accept or reject. So the parables here are an example of this sifting process. But before Jesus explained the parable, he said this in verse 13. He says, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? In other words, if you can't grasp the message of this one, then there is no way you're going to grasp the other ones. Understanding this one is the key. And so to help them understand what's going on, Jesus went on and he explained the parable to them. And as we've already read, there are three main components of this parable. There's the soil, there's the sower, and there is the seed. And we'll see here in just a few verses that Jesus says the seed is the Word. Luke's account says that it is the Word of God, and Matthew's account says that it is the Word of the Kingdom. In other words, the seed is the news that Jesus Christ is King. And those who respond to the King appropriately, obediently, can become citizens in His Kingdom. And these words, then, are sown by the sower. Now, in this parable, not much is said about the sower. But I would say that we can draw some conclusions by looking at another passage in the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is telling the parable of the weeds. And in that parable, he says that the seed is the Son of Man. The seed is himself. It's Christ. Now, I want to be clear, we need to be careful about this because parables are meant to be like a type of illustration. And so we don't want to just haphazardly take an element from one parable and assume that it applies to another. But in this case, it seems that Jesus very well could be the sower in the parable of the sower. I mean, what did Jesus come to do? Part of his mission was to teach, right? I mean, what is he doing here in this account in Mark chapter 4? He's standing in a boat and he's sowing the good news of the kingdom. And so I think that it applies. But I think we can expand this a little bit further because, yes, Jesus taught. But Jesus was not the only one to teach. A chapter earlier in Mark chapter 3, Jesus called 12 special men. And part of the duty of those men was to go out and to preach, to sow the Word. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15, the Apostle Paul was a chosen vessel to bear the name of Christ. He was to teach. He was to spread the good news of the Gospel. Then also, we are to teach. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus gives this command to the eleven. He says, Go therefore 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Listen to verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. When you sit and meditate on verse 20, you realize that what's happening is the command for the disciples to teach is also passed down to us. And so we can say the sower in this parable is anyone who spreads the word of God. And so what is it that we as sowers are throwing the seed over? We're throwing it over the soil, right? What does that mean? Well, in Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 13, verse 19, Jesus is talking about this first type of soil, the path, and he says this, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown where? In the hearts. The soils represent the varying conditions of the hearts of men. And they tell us how these conditions receive the message of the kingdom. And so these three things are key in in helping us unlock the mystery of this parable. And they also communicate to us what it is that Jesus wants us to know from the parable. These things help us understand and help us realize that when Jesus taught... And when Jesus communicated the message, it it tells us why some people accepted his message, but why others rejected. This parable tells us why when the apostles went out and taught, that some people adhered to their words, but other people wanted them dead. This parable tells us why we, when we go out, and spread the message to others, why we get such a variety of different responses. These are the things that Jesus is communicating to us. And He makes that more clear beginning in verse 15 when He goes on and starts giving a detailed explanation of the parable. In verse 15, Jesus says this, And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown, when they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And so this path, this soil type, is the person who sees but does not perceive. Who hears but does not understand. This is the person who has a hard heart, who is indifferent towards the words of Christ. The words of Christ don't seem to affect this person. They hear the words, but they don't take in the words. This is the person that the psalmist would call a fool, because he says there is no God. And the reason why the word can never find its way into the heart of this individual is because as soon as the word hits their heart, Satan comes in and takes the word away and says, you don't need that. Luke chapter 8, verse 12, puts it this way. The devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Satan doesn't want any of us to be saved. And so he takes it. And how does he take it from certain people? Well, he takes it by 
convincing us that we don't need it. He uses our pride or our arrogance. He convinces us that we're too smart for a message like that. He convinces us that the word of the kingdom is foolish. He convinces us to say, why would we ever want to put our trust in a man who died on a cross? Why would we ever want to believe that his blood can forgive sin? There's a number of ways that Satan can come in and snatch the word from us. But this soil teaches us something very, very important. And that is that every time the word of God is proclaimed, Satan is lurking right around the corner, ready to swoop in and snatch away every ounce of it that he can. Because more than anything, Satan wants people to be blinded to the truth. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. He said, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, or Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan swoops in and snatches the word because more than anything, he wants people from seeing the life-giving light of Christ. He wants people from, he wants to keep people from seeing the glory of Christ. And sadly, Satan has been extremely successful in this. Because I think more than anything, this is the most pervasive type of soil in the world today. And it always has been. And then there are those who have hearts that are rocky. In verse 16, Jesus says, These are the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And so this is a person who actually hears the word, and they receive the word, and they receive it with great joy and excitement, and they're zealous about it. But the problem is, they have no roots. They're not grounded in the word. And so when a trial arises, they stumble, and they fall away. Now, typically, we think about trials like the sudden loss of a family member or the unexpected loss of a job. And certainly, those things test our faith. And if we're not grounded in the Word, then yes, those things can cause us to stumble and fall. But specifically, here in this parable of the sower, Jesus says that they fall away when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the Word. And so these are people who receive it, they're joyous, they're excited about it, they're ready to go. But the problem is, they never took seriously the fact that being a Christian actually costs something. They never took seriously the fact that being a Christian means there's a cross to bear. And so when friends oppose them, or when family opposes them on account of the word, what do they do? They wither, and they fall away. Their shallow faith gets burned up, 
by the pressures that's put on them on account of the word. And then Jesus goes on and explains the thorny soil. He says in verse 18 that they are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word. And it proves unfruitful. Again, another type of soil that receives the word. And it tries to grow in the word. But the problem is, this is a person who has not weeded out all of the other distractions in their lives that prevent their faith from growing strong. They haven't weeded out the cares of the world. They're still so focused on their career, so focused on the need for worldly success. Or maybe they're focused on riches. How many people have heard the word and received the word, but they still put their trust and security in money instead of their trust and security in God? 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 says that those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But it doesn't have to be money. It doesn't have to be your career. It doesn't have to be this need for worldly success. It can be anything else that people prioritize above God. And if we do this, if we keep our hearts crowded with the things of the world, the cares of the world, then those things will eventually win out. Because all of those things take up the energy that we should be devoting to God, to our spiritual lives, it saps all that energy, and pretty soon, our faith is choked out. It's this soil that reminds me of Demas. Do you remember Demas, who was a person who worked along with Paul, but in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, Paul says, For Demas, who is in love with this present world, has deserted me. It seems like Demas was a man with a heart of thorns. And we move from the thorny ground to the last soil that Jesus described, and that is the good soil. In verse 20, Jesus says, But those who were sown on the good soil are those who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is the soil that represents the one who has a fertile heart. Who represents the one who hears the word and gladly accepts the word. And the evidence of this is seen in the fact that they bear fruit. I imagine that many that were mentioned in verse 10 had hearts like this. I'm confident that the Bereans in Acts chapter 17, I'm confident they had hearts like this. It says that they received the word with all readiness. They searched the scriptures daily to find out whether the things being taught were true. As we mentioned, when a person hears and understands and responds and has this type of soil, they're going to bear fruit, aren't they? 
And when we read through the New Testament, we see all sorts of types of fruit that are produced. There's the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is a Christ-like character that people produce. They produce action fruit and attitude fruit. And they produce the fruit of good works, as Colossians chapter 1 verse 10 says. There, Paul says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. People who have good soil as a heart, They bear fruit, not for their own glory, but they bear fruit for the glory of God. They do good works for His glory. Then there's also the fruit of praise and thanksgiving. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, the Hebrew writer says, Through Him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. And we offer up the fruit of our lips when we gather together and sing praises to God. But we also offer up the fruit of our lips when we honor and glorify God in our daily conversations. There are so many ways that the good soil bears fruit. And so this is the parable of the sower. This is its explanation. But before we conclude, I want to talk about a few lessons that we can learn about this parable, some takeaways. And the first thing that I want us to observe is that we should all have a desire to know more. I'll just tell you, when I went through and studied this parable, verse 10 just stuck out to me more than any other verse. I know it's a verse that doesn't get talked about a lot, but the attitude of those people, the fact that they wanted to know more, it just spoke volumes to me. Again, Verse 10, when he was alone, those around him with the twelve, they ask about the parables. And this is the type of attitude that we should have towards the words of Christ. Because it's this mentality that allows God to reveal to us the mysteries of the kingdom. And so when we come to worship, We should be eager to open up our Bibles and to follow along with the sermon to discover the truths of God's Word. When we go to Bible class, we should be eager to follow along and to participate and to ask questions so we can discover the truth of the kingdom. We should be eager to have personal Bible study where we just dig in and allow God to reveal things to us. Tonight is a good example of how we have gathered together to open up the Word and to learn something new. We need to have a desire to know more. We need to have this attitude towards the Word of Christ. The second thing I want us to talk about tonight is the fact that we need to get busy sowing the Word. I understand that Many people are apprehensive about this. But did you notice that nothing in this parable is talking about the skill of the sower? It's not about the skill of the sower, is it? He just went out and sowed. 
too many times we say, I don't have the skill to do that. But the reality is, we can all sow the word. Now, I readily acknowledge that the way in which we sow is going to look different from individual to individual. If you are going to a Bible study and somebody is leading that study, you might think that they're the sower. But I want to tell you this. Your presence, your participation, your questions, your comments aid in sowing the word among the non-believers who are present in that Bible study. If you open up your home for a neighborhood Bible study and you let someone else lead it, you have aided in the sowing process. The word is being proclaimed because of what you have done. Your actions. You've done something. Again, the only thing that we know about the sower is that he went out to sow. He did something. He knew that if he just sat on the sidelines, nothing was going to grow. And that is something that we have got to take seriously. We have got to meditate on that. Because all around us, the world is in sin and darkness. And we need to step up individually and realize that God has called each and every one of us to be salt that positively impacts the world. To be light that shines the truth of Christ, that glorifies Christ. That's what we've been called to do. And if no one else, if we don't do it, then no one else will. And the reason that no one else will is because nobody has the responsibility or the ability to do it like Christians can. We're it. If we don't step up, How is the kingdom going to grow? How is it going to happen? God has called us to do this. And we have to take seriously our responsibility to be salt, to be light, to be sowers. And when we do that, we're going to see something that's sad. And that is that the majority of people that we reach out to will prove to be unfruitful. In fact, in this parable, three-fourths of the soils proved to be unfruitful. And I know that sounds sad. And it is sad. But it's the truth of Scripture. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. Jesus says the majority are going through the wide gate. This is seen in Jesus' ministry. In John chapter 6, Jesus, the day before, had fed the 5,000. He crosses the sea. The next day, they're at Capernaum, and he's proclaiming that He is the bread of life. And the multitudes heard that. And they couldn't handle that. They didn't like that. They rejected that. So what does John 6 say happened? The multitudes, the majority, turned their back and walked away, leaving only 
a few. The majority are going to prove to be unfruitful. But that does not mean that we have failed. If it means that we have failed, that means that Jesus failed. Because most people rejected him. And we all know he didn't fail. You look at the scriptures and you read about the prophets. They were rejected time after time after time. From a physical perspective, they failed. But in God's eyes, they succeeded. Because they did what they were called to do. We've got to step up to the plate. Next thing I want us to know is that all of us are one of these four types of soils. In other words, all of us have had the word cast upon us. There may actually be some here this evening who are hearing the words of Jesus, but at this very moment you're digging your heels in the ground and you're hardening your heart towards the word. Satan is snatching it away from you because he doesn't want you to see the truth. Some of us here may be the rocky soil. We've heard the truth. Maybe we've received it and we've been excited about it. But all of a sudden, something might happen where we're opposed on account of the word. And we might wither away. Maybe you feel yourself withering away right now. Some of us, maybe that thorny soil. Maybe we've grown and we've developed, but the things of the world are, are starting to put pressure on us, starting to take away all of our energy. And again, right now, you may feel that. Feel your zeal for God waning. You may think about all of the different things in your life and how you have such a hard time letting those things go. And you feel like you're choking. But hopefully many of us are the good soil. The soil that has heard the word, received the word, allowed the word to take root, and now we're growing and maturing and we're producing fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Each and every person in this room tonight is one of these four types of soil. And so all of us need to examine our hearts. And if we find that we are one of the unfruitful soils, then we need to make some changes. Which leads me to the last point. And it's a great point. And that point is that all of us can change our soil type if need be. If we find that we are one of these unfruitful soils, we can change and be transformed by the power of God into the good soil. We need to realize that God is patient with each and every one of us because He wants us to be the good soil. He wants us to bear fruit. Christ has given us everything we need to be fruitful. And all we have to do is respond appropriately to make the necessary changes to allow God to transform our hearts into that good and that fruitful soil. This is the parable of the sower. 
These are some lessons that I hope we can learn from them. 